0: We're going to get started uh, by reading this psalm right away, written by King David some 3,000 years ago. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Are most of us there? If you have your iPhone Bible or Samsung Bible, you're already there for sure. It's kind of cheating, I will say. I'm joking. I'm joking. Let's, uh, let's read Psalm 103, starting in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we say and we believe this is the word of the Lord. Uh, We believe that after we've read Scripture, we have indeed read the words of God, inspired through the pens of men some 2,000, 3,000 and more years ago. And so, Lord, what we've just read and what we're about to dive into and dissect um, is your very heart for us. Please open our hearts to receive your heart for us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, what we pray is that you would transform us by your grace, by your word, into the likeness of your Son who was perfect in every way. Ask that you would edify your church today, the believers here in this place. And ask that you would glorify yourself as we celebrate your word and your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Helen Keller, as many of you know, was a woman who was born blind and deaf at the turn of the 20th century, and Reader's Digest magazine did an article. They published an article on Helen Keller's life a few years ago, and they quoted these words of hers. She said this, I have always thought it would be a blessing if each person could be blind and deaf for a few days during his early adult life, because darkness would make him appreciate sight, and silence." would teach him the joys of sound. It's interesting how we as humans can become so familiar with so used to things so accustomed to things uh, even miraculous things such as the the senses of sight and sound and smell we we can get used to having these miracles right they become almost mundane and status quo they they blend into the woodwork of our lives and i wonder if this has what happened amongst most of us church folk when we talk about the word and the concept Of Grace. Week after week we sing songs. We've sung them this morning. Songs like Grace Alone, or Amazing Grace, or Grace and Peace, or The Scandal of Grace. These are all songs that we sing regularly here. And before all of our meals, most of our meals, we say grace. We have churches named grace, and we have children named grace. We couldn't say the same about last week. There are no churches called Wrath Community Church, right? Or my son, Wrath, and my, my daughter, Justice. You know what I mean? We don't, that, those aren't common. Let's face it, in, in Christian circles, the word grace is everywhere. But... What actually is it? What does it actually mean for us in real time today? Today we continue in our series on the attributes of God. As I said earlier, we're going to continue, we're going to look and we're going to consider God's grace, the grace of God. And if you're new or if you're just now visiting us here at Substance Church in Worcester, first of all, welcome. We're glad that you're here. But if you're just now visiting us, we've been studying the attributes, the characteristics, the traits of of God, because our desire is to better know and to better understand who God is and what He is like. So, the first week we've looked at the holiness of God. We looked at how He is perfect in moral purity and in beauty. He is totally set apart from us in all of His perfections. He is holy. We've looked already at the knowledge of God, how God knows absolutely everything there is to know about. Everything from eternity past all the way to eternity future, he is always everywhere all at once. And it informs his knowledge of all things. We've looked at the sovereignty of God. How God is in ultimate control over everyone and everything. Because if something or someone exists in his universe, he ultimately presides over them. Last week we looked at the wrath of God. And it's out of the wrath. Of, see, it's, it's because of His holiness. It's because God is utterly morally pure that He cannot, He does not tolerate sin. He is the only one on the planet, only one in existence who is justifiably angered by anyone and anything that opposes Him in unrighteousness. And it's really good news. We looked at this last week. It's really good news that God is is a wrathful God. One of his attributes being wrath. It's good that he does not tolerate wickedness and injustice. That means that Hitler will answer for his heinous crimes. He will. As will everyone else who delights in darkness. See, the more that we study God's divine attributes as revealed to us in the scriptures the better we know and the better we understand who he is and what he is like and the better we come to find that just like each unique facet of a diamond adds to its luster so too each of God's unique attributes adds to the radiance of his glory He is beautiful and wonderful. So this morning as we look at the grace of God as revealed to us in Psalm 103, as we look at what the grace of God is and and what the grace of God means for us, I pray that we walk away in a similar fashion that Moses walked away from God on Mount Sinai. Maybe not as extreme, but he shone with the glory of the Lord. His face beamed and his heart was worshiping. That's what I pray happens today. And so I'll give you my outline here in just a second, but I just want to define grace right off the bat so we know what we're talking about. Unmerited favor. That is what grace is. Unmerited favor. It is favor that cannot be earned it is a gift that cannot be gathered. It's a blessing that cannot be bought. It is a present that cannot be procured. You like my alliteration this morning. Grace is favor that cannot be earned. It is unmerited. And For the rest of our time as we examine Psalm 103, this is how we're going to kind of look at grace. Number one, we're going we're to look at this. That God does not give us what we deserve. It's one facet of his grace that we're going to look at. How God does not give us what we deserve. And this is really good news. But rather, point number two, God gives us what we do not deserve. And that's where we're going to be for the remainder of our time. Underneath number one or number two. And so let's start with number one. God does not give us what we deserve. Now, technically, theologically speaking, this is the definition of mercy. So justice is when we get exactly what we deserve, which is punishment. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. He pardons us. And grace is when we get abundantly more than we deserve. That's grace. Those are three quick definitions, but, but I think this, this concept of mercy is encompassed in grace, which is why I'm starting with God does not give us what we deserve. Grace and mercy are different, yes, but they are also dance partners, and we'll see that in the, in the passage. See, getting this right, getting point number one right, understanding that God does not give us what we deserve is foundational to understanding and appreciating His grace. See, in the same way that Helen Keller wanted her peers to appreciate the senses of sight and sound, the psalmist, King David, wants us to appreciate in this passage the miracle of God's grace. It is a miracle. Let's not let the word grace just blend into the woodwork and become status quo. This idea of grace begins here, that if you are here and if you are a Christian... That means if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you orient your life around that truth, you're a Christian. The Bible says that you were chosen before the foundations of the world by God to be forgiven and saved from your sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and given eternal and abundant life with him. For anyone who believes the message of that good news, you are a Christian, and God does not give you what you deserve. He does not give you what you deserve in this life, nor will He give you what you deserve in the life to come. And I'll explain what I mean by that right now. This psalm, Psalm 103, was written by David as we've covered. Maybe you don't know David's story And so let me hash that out, and then we're going to dive into some of these passages that we have before us. David was a married man. He was a noble king. He was a worshiper of God. And one day he was out on his rooftop balcony. He was surveying all of his kingdom. All of a sudden he saw the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen in his life bathing on her balcony. And as suddenly as he had seen her, he made up his mind that he would have her although he knew that his actions would not only transgress God's law, it would break God's heart. The woman's name was Bathsheba, as many of you know. She was married to a man named Uriah, who was one of David's loyal soldiers. Bathsheba did not belong to David in marriage, in the same way that the forbidden fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil did not belong to Adam and Eve. And just like Adam and Eve, David ended up taking what was not his. He slept with Bathsheba. And just like Adam and Eve, David disobeyed the God who had created him and who had loved him and who had walked with him faithfully and steadfastly. Just like Adam and Eve, David turned his back and acted as if he were God usurped God's authority and did as he pleased. And Bathsheba became pregnant. And as we read this story, surely, surely we think this is the end of the perverted fairy tale. Surely in light of the pregnancy, David, the noble king that he is, the man after God's own heart that he is, he's going to come clean. But what did he do? Just like Adam and Eve, after they had eaten the fruit, David ran into hiding further and further into sin and into darkness. Remember he sent for Uriah who was away in battle hoping that Uriah might come home to his wife and hoping that the pregnancy would be accredited to Uriah. Are we all following? But when Uriah refused to be with his wife while his comrades were away in battle. David was given, yet again, another opportunity to just come clean with it. But like Adam and Eve, he did not. Instead, he instructed his commanders to place Uriah on the front line. Uriah was killed in battle, but make no bones about it, David murdered Uriah. It wasn't long after this whole horrific event that it all came crashing down on David. His sin, like God promises it will do, had found David out. And Psalm 51 records the words of David as he wept before the Lord in repentant anguish for what he had done. And these are the words of Psalm 51. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. God, cleanse me from my sin, for it is ever before me. And I know that against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment against me. He cries out, deliver me. From my blood guiltiness, O God, of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. You might be wondering, what on earth does this have to do with Psalm 103? Psalm 103 is the result of this prayer in Psalm 51. Psalm 103 is a song of God's amazing grace, the song of God's saving righteousness. He sings, David, in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Why? Why is David commanding his soul to worship the Lord? Well, verse 8, Because the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. We've, Man, if you write in your Bible, circle verse 10, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. For as far as the east is from the west, that far, forever far, he removes our transgressions from us who are in Christ. So what does this have to do with you and I in Worcester, Ohio this morning? Church, we have all, like Adam and Eve and David and every other person and character in Scripture, every other person in in existence, we have all turned our own way. We have all, in our own way, disregarded and disobeyed our Creator God, following the passions of our flesh, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2. We've all given in to the, the sinful desires of our mon- minds and bodies and done what is unrighteous and unholy. And because of this, because we have all turned away, we have put ourselves at enmity with God. For He is holy, He is righteous he cannot associate with what is unholy and unrighteous we have made ourselves his enemies with every disobedience when you have a perfectly moral utterly pure holy god who is the standard of living with which he has created us for or for which he has created us every deviation from his desire is cosmic treason Every word of gossip, every lustful second look at a woman who's walking down the road, every addiction that ensnares us and gains our loyalty more so than our loyalty to God, every verbal abuse, every act of unrighteous impatience, every uh, dishonesty and and, and tax fraud and and, and irreverent business principles, all of these things. I mean, even we call them white lies, little fibs, right? Trying to justify ourselves before a holy God. We stand condemned, all of us, guilty. And this is the first thing we have to understand in looking at God's grace. This is what we deserve. For the wages of sin is death. What we deserve is we deserve swift, just punishment. We deserve to die for our sins. And if we fail to grasp that this is what we deserve, then the miracle of God's grace that spares us from that death will be of no real significance to us. And often I look at my life. Maybe you can examine your own in your mind now. I often live as if grace is not really that significant to me. J.I. Packer, who writes the book Knowing God, touches on this idea of grace becoming just not very significant to us. And he writes it in this way He says, Modern men and women, conscious of their tremendous scientific achievements, kind of dates his book a little bit, are naturally inclined to a high opinion of themselves. They view material wealth as more important than moral character, and in the moral realm, realm they are resolutely kind to themselves, treating small virtues as compensating for great vices and refusing to take seriously the idea that morally speaking, there is anything much wrong with them, refusing to take seriously that there's much wrong with us. It seems that modern men and women are convinced that despite all their little, what we call them, bad habits, minor faults, white lies, we are at heart thoroughly good folks. The thought of ourselves as creatures who are fallen from God's image and rebels against God's rule, who are guilty and wicked by definition in God's sight and fit only for God's condemnation, those thoughts never enter our heads. And it diminishes the miracle of grace. The very thing we must first understand, praise God, is that God In Christ, we'll get to that part. In Christ, he does not give us what we deserve. But rather, point number two, he gives us what we do not deserve. As I was having coffee with Brian Hodge this morning, he said, you know, grace is so much more than God merely restricting his judgment on us. It's it's so much more than him just merely Not burning us up in wrath. It's so much more. It's God giving us everything. Is what he said and I love that. In verse 2 the psalmist writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Because the Lord doesn't just show us mercy. He doesn't just not give us what we deserve. He forgives all of our iniquity, yes. Verse 3. He pardons us. But he goes infinitely above and beyond, merely not giving us what we deserve. He gives us what we do not deserve. Verse 3, second half, he heals all our diseases. Now, I'm not going to go TV preacher on you this morning. Some of us experience that healing in this life. Yes, yes we do. He does heal. Some of us experience healing in this life, but all Christians, praise God, will experience it in the life to come. Such as my grandma who recently passed with early onset Alzheimer's and dementia. She has received her healing. Verse four, he redeems us from the pit of death. That is, he awards us new and abundant and everlasting life that begins at the moment of faith. Now, for some of you, I pray all of you, He crowns us, second half of verse 4, with steadfast love and mercy. I love how one commentator put this, like a wreath of honor that is placed on the head of a dignitary. The people of God are adorned with God's covenant loyalty and mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we do not deserve. Verse 5, he satisfies us with good. He renews our strength each and every day. How easy is it to forget what a miracle it is that I don't think any of us is wondering where lunch is going to come from today. How easy it is to forget what a miracle it is that we probably showered with clean water. Our faucets are are running with clean water. The, the, The water we use to clean the schoolhouse all weekend. Cleaner than many countries have for drinking water. How easy it is to forget the miracle of a winter coat. Proper medicine. A soft pillow. We read in the very next psalm, Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, how God satisfies us with good things. Food from the earth. Wine to make our hearts glad. Oil to make our faces shine. Bread to give us strength. Church, have we forgotten his benefits? We don't deserve them. I uh, had a friend uh, in our old church named Gary Orner, and every time I would run into him at church, I would say, Gary, how are you doing? And I love his answer, better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. Forget not all his benefits. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Verse 6. Again, some of us will see justice come to fruition in this life, but all of us in Christ will see it in the next. Some prisoners who are falsely accused and condemned into prison, some of them will be exonerated in this life, but all of them who are in Christ will be exonerated in the next. If you've ever felt abandoned a victim of injustice, robbed, abused, falsely accused, or slandered, if you've ever suffered any heartache whatsoever of being wronged in this life, you may see justice served. You may. You may. But count on it, believers. You will see it in the next. And in the meantime, forget not all of God's gracious benefits toward you. The Lord is merciful and gracious indeed, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I love this, for he knows our frame. He knows how we're fashioned because he fashioned us. He knows what we're made of because he made us. He knows our material because he materialized us. But this goes one step further. He knows our frame because he became like us in the Son, Jesus Christ. As the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit looked down upon the world of people who had turned all of us to our own way to worship ourselves God was filled with compassion and sent the willing Son, Jesus Christ, to to be born in our human likeness. And he was raised as a boy. Scripture says he grew in wisdom and stature. He never once sinned. We talk about that every week. He was blameless and perfect. He perfectly obeyed the Father all of his life. And in great compassion, Jesus willingly took upon himself the sins of the world. He became sin. The one who knew no sin became sin. And then he died the just penalty for sin on a cross. The wages of sin is death, yes. And he died in our place on the cross so that we could be pardoned from that sin. He was buried. He was raised to life as the guarantee that he is God. He holds the keys over death. And he is worthy of to have our faith and trust placed in him. He promises new life to all who believe that gospel message. He became like us. And he can relate to us in all of our frailty and finitude. He was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. He knows our frame. So that he could give us what we do not deserve. Salvation. Salvation. Forgiveness from our iniquity. The hope of everlasting life with him, with the Godhead. Forget not that Jesus became like us in his grace. So that we might be found, we who are lost in him. And that we might respond as we see in the rest of this psalm. With praise soaked Obedience, praise-soaked obedience. David exclaims, bless the Lord all, oh my soul, all that is within me, forget not his benefits. His praise continues in verses 20 through 22. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Verse 21, bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Today, this morning, we have the opportunity to do what we do every time we break bread together in the cafe after our gatherings. And every time we, we eat together in our meals in, in community group or pizza in the schoolhouse We have the opportunity to do what we do every time, which is we break bread in fellowship and remembrance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I just spelled out, that Jesus knows our frame, that he became a man. He brought upon himself humanity, and he became a sinner in our place on the cross we deserve. His body was broken, his blood was poured out as our substitute What we rightly deserved, he paid. We have the opportunity to remember and to celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus poured out for sinners that we would come to know him as our Savior and as our Lord. And so I would encourage you this morning... That if you are a believer, if you subscribe to that gospel, if you, uh, if you profess and demonstrate, you orient your life around that truth, come up and enjoy the remembrance of his body and blood at peace that there is no condemnation for you. We have been saved by grace, the grace of God, not of our own doing. It's unmerited. It's freely bestowed upon us. And if you are here and you have not oriented your life around that gospel, if you do not ultimately believe that Jesus Christ, his body and blood broken and poured out on behalf of you and your sin, I would encourage you to abstain from coming to the table to take communion today. It is for those who acknowledge Christ his gospel work in our lives, and we orient our lives around that truth. But I would encourage you, if you do not believe the gospel, that you would respond today with belief, and that you would speak to myself or Brother Seth, and that we would have the privilege of leading you and, and even expounding further on the grace of God that we've just peeked at this morning. And so I'm going to invite um, our servers our communion servers, to come forward. Uh, I'm going to pray and thank God for for this, and I'll break the bread, and then you can uh, come forward as you see fit to take these elements. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to forget not all of your benefits. The pinnacle benefit, the premier benefit that we celebrate today in your grace is that Jesus willingly came, God the Son. He became sin, he who knew no sin, so that we might become the very righteousness of God to be pardoned and atoned for and to be reconciled back into forever relationship with you. God, give us a reverence during this time. We ask for any in this room who who do not know you and believe in you as Savior and Lord, would you this day grant them faith as only you can by your grace. Grant them repentance to see the folly of sin. And Lord, lead them to you, to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.